There's no one else above you. God, and we gather in this place today to lift your name in song. God, I just pray that it would be more than just a song for us. God, that our hearts would lift you up each and every day of our life. God, that we would put you on a throne in our lives. Lord, we we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Can we see? last week some of you weren't here uh for the for the uh first of the year but i introduced uh those who were here to squirrel theology uh i don't know if you've heard of squirrel theology but um there are three things about squirrels that you have to admire Uh, there are probably other things uh, but i think three things that apply to us number one squirrels have a one-track mind i love scrid don't you uh in, in the ice age movies uh, sorry about the resolution. We've got a new computer. We're trying to get all that fixed, but that was a little crazy. But, um, but they have a one-track mind. They focus on one goal, don't they? Yeah. And, and what would that focus be? Nuts. Yeah. So, 
So I encouraged everyone to go nuts uh, this year, uh, last week, and to get focused on the one thing, the one priority that matters in our lives. And there's a second thing about squirrels. They store up for the future, don't they? Yeah, they are always storing up for the future. And we talked about that last week, that in the Sermon on the Mount where we were camped, that Jesus says we ought to be storing up for the future as well. We ought to be laying up for ourselves treasures where? In heaven. You see, everything else down here is temporal. It's not going to last. It's going to rust. You're not taking it with you. Okay? The guy who dies with the most toys just dies. Okay? But you can be storing up for yourselves treasures somewhere in heaven. And that's worth contemplating. What would that look like? And there's a third thing about squirrels. Squirrels are willing to go out on a limb. They are willing to take some risk. They will stretch themselves, as you can see, for that goal, for that prize. Now, where do we find that focus in Scripture? Matthew six thirty three. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. You'll have what you need, but make your singular priority, your, the, the single priority of your lives, make your focus, you know, make, make every intentional effort to keep Christ loving him and following him central in your life. Let that be your focus. Now, I would suggest to you, just coming off our conversation last week, that my definition for the church would be this. A church is just a gathering of people who love Jesus and are seeking to follow him. A group of people who have that singular focus, and they have gathered together somehow to build a community of people that love him and are seeking to follow him with their lives. That's the simplest definition that I can come up with. And so with that in mind, I want us to talk about what kind of church we want to be in 2012. What if each of us were to make Christ first in our life not just Savior, but as Lord in our life. That's what it would mean if we make him priority, if we make him central to our plan and our purpose, and we live with an intent to, to love him and to know him. What might happen around Willowbend Church if we did that? If every one of us in this room did that for 2012? Let's talk about it. All right, first, let's consider these phrases from a definition, Okay. Let's pop them up there. Go to the next slide, Cherie. All right. Think with me. This comes from Burke Namas' book, Leader's Strategy for Taking Charge. It is appropriate for the organization and the times. It sets the standards of excellence and reflects high ideals. It clarifies purpose and direction. It inspires and it encourages commitment. It is well articulated and easily 
understood. It reflects the uniqueness of the organization. It is ambitious and represents undisputed progress. What is it? What do you think it is? It's vision. It's vision. That's what it is. Proverbs 29, 18 says, without a vision, the people perish. So what happens if we don't have vision? Nothing happens. Another translation is without vision, the people are, the people are what? unrestrained they are aimless unfocused we become self-indulgent without vision people perish but with vision with vision what happens if we have vision for our lives can you imagine what would happen there is purpose and we thrive And we live. Simple definitions. Vision is a picture of the future that produces in us what? Passion. It's Bill Hybels. How many of you grew up under the liturgical calendar? You know, reading from the lectionary? Did any, some of you do that? I thought there were more of us. How many of you grew up Catholic? Maybe that's a better way to, all right. Thank you. You know, somewhere about 40 to 50% of our, of our folks grew up. But many of us even here went to parochial school. Raise your hand if you went to parochial school. Look, see, there's some hands. Okay. So you may not have realized it, but you were growing up under the liturgical calendar or you were using the lectionary or, you know, or a, a guided way of approaching Scripture. So, so if you were a good, a good group, a good Catholic, what is today in the lectionary calendar, in the in, in, the, in the liturgical calendar. What is today? It's epiphany. What does epiphany mean? A simple definition of epiphany is a different way of seeing. A way of seeing more clearly. That's what epiphany is. And so what do we celebrate on epiphany? The three kings, the visit of the Magi. Okay, now I want to be sure. The scripture calls them Magi. You know, we later ascribe them to be kings, but in scripture, they're simply called Magi. Now, we get the word magician from that word, correct? And so there was a point at which much later in history, um, you know, magicians and sorcerers had a certain kind of sway and power and influence in cultures and still do in some third world countries, even in Chiapas where we go. There are witch doctors, there are people that, you know, that claim to have powers, but the original term for magi, we get the word image from that. It's those who have a waiting. They can see an image. The, 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 the magi came all the way from Persia with a purpose. There was a passion because of what they could see, what they saw being fulfilled. And we get also from that word imagination from the same root 
word. Listen to this definition from Stephen Covey. Vision is applied imagination. All things are created twice. First, a mental creation, and second, a physical creation. And the first creation is always vision. Do you get it? I love the story about uh, after Walt Disney had died, had passed away, they invited his wife to cut the ribbon on, on Disney World in Orlando. And he was already dead. And the person who was presenting her to give the opening address said, we welcome Mrs. Disney here. I only wish that Walt could have been here to see this. His wife st- stood up, went to the podium and said, he did. And then she sat down. How could she say that? Because he had the vision. He saw it here. And he set it in motion to become a... He may not have lived to see the physical creation of everything, but he had the vision. He had the imagination to make it happen. So our mission, if you're looking at the program today and you open the program up... Our mission as Willowbend will never change. Now, we may reword it a little bit. We may alter it a little to update it in phraseology. But it will always, it will always center on the great commandment and the great commission from Jesus. So our mission statement, as you'll find website and everywhere we go, and we say it again and again, our mission is living life living in community, living, doing life together, living life, doing two things, loving God and loving others. Our vision for 2012 is something that has been bugging me for well over a year. Our youth, summer before last, went to New Orleans and came back wearing, they they all came back wearing T-shirts that said, live sent. And I have not been able to get away from that phrase for well over a year because the Lord just kept bringing me back there. And I'm proposing to you that our vision for 2012 as will have been church is to live sent. Live sent. And I hope you'll join me in that. Over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack the acrostic, S-E-N and T, with you and talk in specifics about what it would look like if we as a church family, as a gathering of people who love Jesus and have committed to follow him, if we were to live sent in the world, what would our lives look like and what would our community begin to look like? Okay, so our theme, our theme verse for the whole series is going to be John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus in the upper room said this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I am sending you. In the same way the Father 
sent me. I want us to read those words in context, if you would allow me, for a few minutes this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 20. I want to tell you that if you don't have a a copy of Scripture, when you come in, please pick up one of the free Bibles that's on the back. We've got an English Standard Version back there, paperback that's free. If you'd like to take one this morning, you can pick one up on your way out, or you can pick one up on the way in if you want to be able to read Scripture. As always, we'll have the words on the screen. John chapter 20, reading this this theme verse within its context. Now, I'm going to actually read two passages. I want to read this in John chapter 20, then I want to read the same story in a different gospel account in Luke chapter 24, because I want you to kind of, in your mind, begin to put those two together, would you? Okay, let's start in chapter 20. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that would have been a Sunday evening. Now, what has happened here? Okay. This will be the first of Jesus' appearances to the whole group of, or the whole gathering of disciples. Now, and it's not limited, it's probably not limited because the, contextually we're, we're told that there were others in the room besides the 11 disciples that were left. Remember, Judas is gone, but there were 11 uh, of the apostles, the disciples, and then there was there were some other followers that were all banded together, and they're in the upper room together. Christ has been resurrected, but he's not yet appeared to them all. He's only appeared to Mary Magdalene and to Simon Peter so far, and to two men that are on the road to Emmaus, that were on a road to Emmaus in in Luke's gospel. And so on that evening, on the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews because they thought the, that the religious authorities were going to be coming after them in the same way they came after Jesus and that their, their fate would be the same as Jesus. So they were fearful and they were afraid and they were huddled together and, and uh, there was probably the lights down low and they were, not, they, were, they were whispering and they were trying to basically lay low with the doors locked. And Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side and his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, a second time he said, peace, shalom be with you. As the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that's John's version of that story. Now I want us to read Luke chapter 24 beginning with verse 36. So turn there if you would. And keep in mind, same upper room, doors locked, same group. John has a perspective that years later he writes, Luke informs us in a little different kind of language with a little different description. But when you put them together, you see a very, a, a wonderful picture of what God, what Jesus is doing with them. So as they were talking about these things, 
Jesus himself self stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and they were frightened and they thought that they saw a spirit. They thought they, that he was a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, and this is a very emphatic myself in the Greek. He's saying this is, you know, look and see. It is, it's me, guys. It's I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? They were doubting for joy. Can you do that? You know, can you have your emotions that mixed up? They were still scared and frightened, but they were at the same time they were there was this, they were beginning to be washed over with this sense of joy. And he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's an interesting statement there. Quite often when we're talking about the coming of Messiah, we will quote the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying here, in, in the upper room with his disciples, he is, he, is, he is virtually saying to them, when you open the book that you have, you have, and, and the Hebrew scholars and the rabbis broke the Old Testament scriptures into three parts. There was the first five books, the law, and then there was the prophets, which was secondary in their thinking, in, in rank to the law, and then there were the writings, and the longest of the writings, the first uh, in the book of writings, and the longest was the Psalms. And Jesus is, in a sense, virtually saying to them, When you open the book, what you will find is me on every page. That's what he's saying. I, I would like to challenge you to a new way of reading Scripture in 2012. Rather than going to Scripture and just looking at what it tells you to do, just go there looking for Jesus on every page. Open up the book and realize what Jesus is claiming here is that everything that is written in this book, the law, the prophets, all of the writings, they point to me. They're about me. I'm the central focus of the book, the central focus of Scripture, in the same way that I am the central focus of your life, you see. And that might change the perspective. If you and I begin to go to Scripture and we're just looking for Jesus to show up and so that we, you know, we understand what he's done for us, then we can live out of who he is and what he's done instead of living trying to keep keep the rules or, 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 or trying to, you know, discover some moral standard that we would never be able to live up to. Just go looking for Jesus in every page. 
What does this tell me about him? What is it that he did for me? So he says, all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms are fulfilled in me, he says. And then he says, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in John's gospel, he's talking to them about their mission. And he says, I am sending you. And then he breathes on them and they have an experience of of the Holy Spirit in their midst in such a way as to guarantee that they will have the power they need to complete the mission. Does that make sense? And in Luke's gospel, when he shares that same story, he says, Jesus comes to the end and says, now before you guys take off and begin to go out and live sent and you take the message, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tarry in in community and in prayer, and I want you to wait until you are clothed with power. And what power is that? It's the power that comes at Pentecost on the church and the, and the acts of the Holy Spirit began in their midst. Now, there's a consistency. There's a consistency that you find in, in Scripture whenever Jesus calls a man and sets him on mission. There is a consistency. Number one, he always shows up. He is always present with us. And he always supplies the resources and the power that we need to complete the mission. It's his resources and it's his presence that sustain us in the going, in the mission, as we are sent into the world. This is consistent. If you go back and look at the very beginning when Jesus began to call the apostles, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, let me read that for you right quick. Look at what it says. And he went up on the mountain and he called those whom he desired and they came to him. This is the very first group that he puts together. The very first group of followers. They would become to be known as apostles, which literally translates the word apostle. We get that word from the Greek and we bring it over into the English and we call them apostles. But it literally means sent ones. It's consistent. They are sent. There's an intent for their lives. They are going to be sent. He called them apostles. So, verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they what? They, first of all, they might be with him. They might know him personally and love him and be committed to him, to the person of Jesus. That he might, number two, send them out 
and that he might give them authority. And the word is exousia. It's divine power, divine authority to cast out, to be involved in spiritual warfare wherever they went. Mark's gospel has a lot of emphasis on spiritual warfare. But you see those three elements there. They're, 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 the intentionality from the very beginning is that they were, they were, these guys were going to live sent. Do you get that? They were going to live sent. But the prerequisite was, first of all, to be with him, to live in fellowship and in companionship, to live in the presence of Christ, and to go out having the power and the authority that was vested in them that they would have the resources that they need. Okay? All right. So, some of us need to rethink church for a moment. Okay? Now, let's just do it. Here's a metaphor that maybe will help you to kind of deal with that for a moment. Okay? Is the church intended to be a filling station? Is it intended to be a filling station or a post office? There are some of us that come into the room and we're looking to get kind of refueled. Are we not? This is kind of our daily dose. It's kind of like let's swing in there into the church and let's get something in our tank. Does that make sense? There are a lot of people that live that way. And, and and so the church for them just becomes just sort of like a filling station. It's kind of, it's, go, it's where I go get a charge. It's where I, I kind of get renewed and kind of get propped up and, you know, I get fueled up for the week. And some of us, before we even get off the parking lot, the fuel filter, you know, pretty much is stopped up and, and, and you know, we're off the side of the road. Some of us run out of gas about three days later, Right. But if you see the church as a filling station, you realize you become pretty consumer-oriented. And so your conversation driving away from church is going to be, well, you know, that message just really didn't, you know, just didn't speak to me this morning. What are you saying? Saying church is my filling station. And, I mean, Dave better have something really clever to say because if he doesn't fill me up, then I'm not going to make it through the week. And if, and if I can't make it through the week, then I better go find another church, you know, where there's a guy who can really preach a message that will fill me up and keep me full for the week. It's kind of like you're coming in on Sunday morning and you see that table of bagels back there. And you, bunch, you smear a bunch of whipped cream on a bagel. And that's going to be your only meal for the week. Because, I mean, after all, you're here to kind of get, you know, so you fill up on, you, you, you eat two or three bagels back there that, that are left out, and then that's all you're going to eat all week? Is that going to work for you? No, never does. But what if we came to see the church as a post office? And what do you do at a post office? That's where letters are gathered together so that they can be sent out and get to the appropriate places. Does that make sense? So I've gathered some letters together this morning. I got my mail bag. We're just going to, you know, just going to take a look. What do you think? I've gathered. I, I want you to make some, inf- some, some observations about this stack right here. What, you, you notice anything? They're all different shapes and sizes. 
aren't they? And, uh, and, and they're all different colors. I mean, we got, we've got colors. I don't know how you dress one that's kind of black, but, but they're all different sizes and shapes, just like us, aren't they? And there's some that come with a little extra padding. <laughs> right? You know, some are long. You know, some, some are stubbier. But, but all different shapes and sizes, you see. Because there's something you need to know. Number one, God don't send out no junk mail. And he doesn't have a bulk mailing permit. Think about it. Every one of us in this room is, is unique. Unique in his eyes. Created differently from everyone else. Every one of us lives in a neighborhood in a context that different, that's different from everyone else, right? And so he makes us all sizes and shapes and all colors, you know, so that it brings glory and honor to him. And then he sends us out wherever he addresses us. And a post office is a place where we gather together the mail so that we can get it sent out into the right places. Now, none of those letters are intended to go and end up in some bin at a post office or sitting on some shelf month after month after month, are they? Are they? No. They're to be in circulation. So uh, the reason we gather them is so that we can we can they can get distributed into those places where he has sent them where he has addressed them they're not just to go sit on the shelf somewhere i love the story francis chan tells about his 10 year old daughter he calls her in the room and he says hey um you know um i want you to go clean your room and uh and so i want you to spend the afternoon getting your room cleaned up and she takes off She's back in about two hours, and, and, and she, he, he says, well, how's it going, honey? And she goes, oh, Dad, I memorized every word you said. I've just been, and I've been thinking and meditating on your words. I just, I've memorized, I've committed, I mean, completely to memory. Not only that, Dad. I called some of my friends and we put together a small group and we get together and we've been discussing your words. And what does he say? Have you cleaned your room? You get what I'm talking about? If the church becomes your filling station, you realize that there's some Christians that are about this full. Because what we do is we get in little groups and we can memorize the word and we can study the word. But if we get, if we, you know, we've never intended to go sit on a shelf. He's got an address for us. And when he sends us, he's not sending bulk mail. He's, he's sending us some specific kind of places. There are people in your life that are in your life that are not in my life. And I'm not responsible to go and be sent to them. Does that make sense? Because he has you to be his 
letter. Where's my scripture? Hey, go to that verse in in second in second uh, Corinthians. Boy, we're having pro- trouble with the screen today, aren't we? I don't know if I can read that. Can't drop that down. Hey, right. <laughs> Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Now keep going. Drop that one down. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ. Showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you are a living letter. And it's so much more than words on a page. It's it's what's inscribed and written on your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so everyone in this room has a unique story, a unique journey. The things that God has done in your life are what's carved not on tablets of stone, but in your heart. And I want to challenge us you know, here, here's here's what's going to happen. You see this stack of mail up here? Okay. I'm going to have, you know, in just a few weeks, I'm going to have plenty of envelopes. Every one of them will be different, unique. I've been to every stationary store in Plano and Frisco, okay? But we're going to pass the plate in a few weeks, and the first letter that you will write will be the letter you write to your Heavenly Father regarding the intentions of your heart of how you want to live in 2012. We're going to talk for the next few weeks about what it means to live sent, to try to make that as clear and simple and understandable as possible from Scripture and from watching Jesus. Because, you see, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so there's our clue as to how he wants us to go. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. So we're going to look at at, at four aspects of his life that will help us to clearly identify what it means to live sent. And, and then you're going to be given an opportunity to take one of these envelopes and there'll be a piece of, if, if I bought it at a stationary store, it'll have a nice little piece of stationery in there, right? You know, uh, some of them will probably just have legal pad. You know, I mean, this is, this looks like a good one for legal pad, okay? You men, let the women take the real cute, delicate little envelopes, the fancy ones. But we're going to pass the plate, and you're going to be given an opportunity to take something that would represent your life. And the first letter you write will be a letter that you write to the Heavenly Father. And then I'm going to ask you to self-address it. And that last Sunday, we'll leave it on the altar, sealed in the envelope. And then in a few months, 
when you least expect it, you might just get it back in the mail from me to remind me of what you wrote, what you said to the Father in terms of the intent of your heart. But this is an opportunity for us with a clear eye, you know, to focus our vision for 2012 on living sent. Living sent. And throughout the year, we're going to tell stories. What do you think it would look like? What do you think this church would look like if everybody in this room decided they were going to live that mission and live sent? You think it would look different around here? I think it looked drastically different in terms of the lives that we would touch and the transformations that would take place. I think it'd be phenomenal. Will you join me? Let's pray.